So glad you've come this morning. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Thanks for gathering with us on this Christmas Eve service. If you have a copy of the Bible, either on your phone or you brought with you, I'd love to have you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to walk through a particular narrative in John's Gospel that attempts to get at the story underneath all stories, that attempts to get underneath all of the narrative of our lives to the promise that God offers to us through the person of Jesus. In other words, I'm gonna try and help you understand or to be reminded of what the reason is for this season. I don't know what your family traditions are. My guess is you'll have some things that you'll do this afternoon that you do all of the time of the year, um, all the time of this year, rather, and maybe one of those things that you do at this time of year is you watch a particular Christmas movie. Do you have your favorite? Let me jog your memory on some of the best and worst Christmas movies. <laughs> we'll start, these are all secular, just so you know. So, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Dr. Seuss Edition, okay? Home Alone, this one never, this next one I never fully understood. What's the deal with Elf? Sorry. Uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, my favorite, Polar Express. Hot chocolate, hot chocolate, right? I like that. Mir okay, a little dated here. I had to actually do research on this one. Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. The over 50 crowds going crazy right now. Okay, I get it. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Kids, ask your grandparents about it. And then... Um, a Christmas Carol. So, so the, the deal with these stories, I just, I'm sad to tell you, none of them are true, okay? And um, apparently someone didn't inform five-year-old Tylon Pittman in Jackson, Mississippi about this fact. You see, he was watching How the Grinch Stole Christmas, at least a cutting of it, and he, he was so upset that he grabbed the phone, he dialed 911. He called and he talked to the operator and reported that the police needed to do something because the Grinch was about to steal Christmas. He hung up the phone and then told his mom, and she said, no, you didn't do that, did you? And he said, I did. And then a knock came at the door. And at the door was police officer Lauren Devell, who asked to speak with the boy who had called about the Grinch. Well, Tylon showed her the clip of the scene where the Grinch had attempted to steal Christmas, and she assured him that the Grinch was not going to ruin his Christmas. And true to her word, the Byram Police Department invited Tylon to come to their station last Monday because they had found the Grinch and they had put him in a cell. <laughs> and they allowed Tylon to close the door and lock it. And the Grinch had been brought to justice. So here's the deal, nearly all stories as it relates to Christmas have the same plot line. It goes like this. During a season of merriment and celebration, someone or something threatens to ruin Christmas. Therefore, a person or people or circumstances conspire in order to save Christmas, and then of course Christmas is saved and the real meaning of Christmas shines bright. That's, that's the plot line arc of every single Christmas story. And we love stories like that. 
But you need to know that that's not just the plot line of Christmas stories, that's the plot line of most stories. In fact, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, used this plot line often and even coined a term for it. He called it catastrophe. What he did is he combined the word catastrophe, something bad that happens, with the word you in order to indicate this moment in a story when an unexpected evil suddenly meets unexpected goodness. Tolkien describes it as the happy turn of events that pierces you with joy because of a sudden glimpse of truth. If you're a fan of Tolkien, you can think of moments like when the riders of Rohan arrive at battle or when Gandalf suddenly appears on the horizon. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, Luke Skywalker appears in the cave. I don't want to ruin it for you, but he's there. <laughs> kind of, you'll see it. If you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a Dickens fan, it's when Scrooge wakes up on Christmas Day. He's a changed man, and when Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. It's the ark. As it moves from tragedy to triumph, as it moves from catastrophe to, as Tolkien called it, you catastrophe. You need to know that this plot arc is not the arc that human beings have just invented. This is the arc of a story that's underneath all stories of life. It's as old as creation, it's as old as the Bible itself. In many respects, every story of transformation has its roots in the Bible's story of transformation and redemption. The text that we're going to look at this morning helps us to see this plot line underneath all plot lines, or to hear the story that's underneath this Christmas holiday. And for that matter, I hope today that you'll consider the storyline that's underneath your life. What John does is he wants to record the life and work of Jesus so that when you hear the works of Jesus that you'll be inclined to believe in his name. That's what John's goal is. So unlike Matthew or Luke that talk about shepherds and wise men and manger scenes, John doesn't have any of that. Because what John is trying to do is to help you understand the story underneath the story. And his storyline, and really the storyline of what's called the gospel, could be summarized with three key words. The words tragedy, the word hope, and the word glory. So what I wanna do is unpack this narrative for you in John chapter one and help you understand the storyline of tragedy, hope, and glory, and how the Bible aims to have that be the storyline of every person. My hope is it would be your storyline today. Maybe it's today that that storyline becomes your story. So first, tragedy. Verse one of John's gospel says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. This is supposed to sound like the very first word in the Bible where it says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the same way that Moses in Genesis is trying to help us understand how did the world begin, John wants us to understand what's the most important story. And so he says, in the beginning was the word. This gospel, John's gospel, starts from the beginning and then after calling Jesus the word, he indicates that he is the revelation of God. That's why he uses the word, word meaning Jesus in himself is here to send a message. In verse nine, where our text begins, we're looking at verses nine to 14, it says this, the true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, he uses this word true light to refer to Jesus. He's the word, but he's also the true light. And again, John's pulling from this creation narrative where when the darkness was over the face of the earth in Genesis 1 and God says, let there be light, there was light. So God is reaching into the darkness in order to create. So now in John, John is referring to the way in which Jesus, as being sent, is God's way of reaching into the darkness, the darkness of human tragedy. Eight chapters later, John will record the words of Jesus when he takes this idea of light, and Jesus says this about himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So John loves light and life, and his aim in this gospel is to help us understand how our story connects into this bigger story of what God is doing. So verse nine starts with the invasion of light into the world, and it's simply the idea that in the midst of all of this darkness, God is sending light. He's moving to those who are in trouble. And when he says that this light, which gives light to everyone, meaning there's this this wide open invitation that God is moving towards the world. Maybe you know that verse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So John's gospel starts with this moment as God moves toward the human race and he moves toward the human race with love and light. So just stop and think of this for a moment. Because this is not just true from a historical perspective, from a biblical perspective, or from a theological perspective. This is also true from a personal perspective. Just ask someone who calls themselves a Christian and ask them this question. When did you know that God was pursuing you? And invariably, that person will have an answer to that question. They'll have a story to tell you as to the moment when they knew the lights came on, they saw the beauty of what we call the gospel, they saw who Jesus was, and they knew that God was in the process of pursuing them. It may have come through a friend, may have come through a family member, may have come through a church service, perhaps a book they were reading, or maybe an old Bible that they picked up. Maybe in a hotel room, they picked up a Gideon's Bible and started to read it. But you'd find this consistent pattern, and that is that God pursues people. And it may be that you're here today on Christmas Eve, and actually this service is a part of that story of God pursuing you. Here you are in a church service, and here I am in John chapter one. Here I am talking about God pursuing people, and there you are, and God is in the process of pursuing you. This meeting is of no accident or by chance. God is in the process of calling people out of darkness. And maybe, maybe he's calling you. In verse 10, we get the sense of the full extent of the tragedy. Verse 10, it says this, he, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Ah, there's the first tragedy. It is that Jesus comes into the world that he's made, and yet he comes to the very world for which he had authority over. He comes as the son of God, and yet people did not recognize him as such. The tragic irony is that while the most important person in all of the world walked the face of the earth, a bunch of people didn't care. They just ignored him and went on to their everyday lives. You know, ignoring Jesus is one thing, but rejecting him is another. 
the tragedy of the human story is not only that we tend to ignore Jesus, meaning we, we, we hear things, we're like, mm, no, I'm just gonna go on with my day, I'm gonna go on with my life, I'm gonna kinda hold this truth over here, but I'm gonna live over here, just gonna ignore this, or verse 11, they rejected him. He came to his own, which means his own things. He came to his own world. He came to his own people, a people who should have recognized him as the Messiah. And it says, and they did not receive him. You know what that word receive means? The word receive means to accept somebody as they are, to acknowledge what has happened or their place in society or culture. So for instance, think of the last time that you went to a wedding and at the end of the wedding, maybe the the bride and groom dismissed the congregation that was there row by row and you had sort of a receiving line. What happens in that moment? Well, it is that you come out from your seat and you greet the new bride and groom and you congratulate them for who they now are. That's why it's a receiving line. You receive them by virtue of who they are. And what happens, according to this text, with Jesus in the world is even though Jesus was sent out of the love of God, even though he did miracles that no one could have done without being the Son of God, even though he taught with a level of authority that was startling and compelling, despite all of this, people refused to receive him. And what's worse, as he claimed to be the Messiah, they silenced his claims by killing him. Or at least so they thought. You see, this is the tragedy of the storyline of the Bible. And it's not just the tragedy of the storyline of Christ, but rather it's the tragic plot line of humanity. Despite God's love and sending us this light in the person and work of Jesus, despite what should be obvious to us about Jesus and about ourselves, both my story and your story, is this consistent pattern in our lives that left to ourselves, we'll either ignore what we should know or what we should know or we will deny what should be obvious. We'll either avoid truth that's nagging within us or we'll just flat out reject it because we don't wanna deal with the implications of what that would mean. You know, in the book of Romans, The Apostle Paul describes this internal human reaction as suppressing the truth. He says in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. It means that all you have to do is look around and the reality of God being God is self-evident. At least it should be. In fact, I think there's ways that we work really hard sometimes to deny that God exists. For example, I've used this illustration before. It's the best one I can come up with. I've been able to witness the birth of all of my children. And it is a remarkable moment. I can remember the first time when we have twin boys and when one of them came out of my wife's womb and I'm looking at this just large baby. I'm like, how did that fit in there? And then I'm thinking, and there's another one in the cooker coming out, right? And I was like, whoa. And that moment when you're holding, you know what I'm talking about, you're holding a newborn baby and suddenly there's a new life in your hands. Listen, you gotta work really hard to deny God in that moment. You gotta suppress that. You gotta do all sorts of internal and mental and emotional gymnastics that God never intended you to do to sort of deny that this is a evidence of a God who is incredibly powerful and incredibly kind. So we suppress 
the truth. We suppress what should be obvious. Let me put it on a negative side. Think of the last time you did something wrong and you felt guilty. Well, where in the world did that come from? Certainly you didn't want to have that emotion, but you felt it. And why did you feel guilty about that thing? The reason is because there is a moral code to the universe, something beyond yourself. It tells you that there is something more governing the world than just what you think is right or wrong. Listen, the the tragedy of our human condition is that we are naturally prone to suppress the truth, and our fallen condition, if we're honest, makes us love darkness more than light. That's what John chapter three and verse 19 says. This is the catastrophe of our humanity. But the good news is this is not the end of the story. The story starts with tragedy, but then we see the entrance of hope. Here comes the you catastrophe. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is. The entrance of truth in the midst of a dark moment. The entrance of the eucatastrophe in the midst of what seems an ultimate tragedy. And what happens here is this really is the sum total of what the message about Christianity is. And it's essentially this, that those who receive and believe become something they can never become on their own. Let me say that again. Those who receive and believe become something they could never become on their own. Why that matters is this, because by believing and receiving something outside of yourself today, you can become something that you'll never become on your own today. And that's what Christmas is all about. To receive Jesus, as I said before, is to receive him as he is. It means that you acknowledge who he claimed to be, that you agree with him as to what he claimed about himself. Well, you might say, well, Mark, what things did Jesus claim about himself? Let me give you a few. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive and radical claim, meaning that there's only one way by which people can be made right with God. One way, and that one way is through the person and work of Jesus. You might say, well, why is that? Why, why, Why can't all ways lead to God? The reason is because it was only Christ who was both God and man, only Christ who died, only Christ who provides sufficient atonement for sins. Jesus is the only one who solves the problem of our waywardness. He's the only one who provides sufficient atonement for our sins. Jesus said this in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said in John 10, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And then in John chapter 10 and verse 27, he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. And when Jesus made this statement in John chapter 10, the people in the crowd grabbed stones and wanted to kill him because it was such an outrageous claim. And there's the dividing line. Whether or not you say, you're an idiot, there's no way you and the Father can be one, there's no way that the only way to God is through you, or to say, that's true, I believe, that's the difference. To receive means that you hear the words of Jesus and you say, that's true. And my hope and prayer is that for some of you, that may happen even on Christmas Eve. I mean, how awesome would that be that even as I'm talking right now, something within your heart says, what he's saying is true, and you've never had that thought before, or you've had that thought, but you pushed it away, and suddenly there's a little crack and a little sliver that's beginning to open the door within your heart even now to say, what if it is that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life? 
What if there is a part of my heart that I can't fully get to and I need someone else to conquer? What if that is indeed true? Friend, it is true. And the question is then, will you receive? Well, what does receive mean? Well, he explains. He says, but, all who, but to all who did receive him, and then he qualifies it, who believed in his name. So believing and receiving are absolutely linked together. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, just listen to what I'm about to say to you, because this is not only what you believe, this is what you live for. This is why you sing. This is why you're filled with joy. Because what I'm about to share with you is the sum total of what the Christian message is. It is that we believe in Jesus means that we believe who he claimed to be, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that when he died, God would take our sins and apply it to him and wipe our accounts clean. We believe that. That's what makes you a Christian. We believe that he rose again from the dead. To believe in his name means that we believe what the Bible says about him, but we also believe what the Bible says about us. It means that we believe that we're sinners, that I'm the biggest sinner I know, because I know what I've done. It means that we're all worthy of God's wrath. It means that our sins against the holy God, though, can be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus, and to believe means that we trust that indeed the record of the Bible is true. Jesus is Lord, he died, he rose again from the dead, and he's coming back. That's the message of the Bible. And so you receive him by believing. And friend, this is more than just intellectual assent. This is just more than what you think in your mind. To believe in his name means that you put your total trust in him for this life and the next. It means that you're trusting, listen, in his righteousness. You're trusting in his salvation. You're trusting in his provision, in his protection, in his authority, and in his rule. It means that the sum total of your life is not in trying. The sum total of your life is not in trusting. That's wonderful if you're coming to Christmas as a hurting, weary Christian with all sorts of challenges, and the next year looks really scary. You know, you can trust Christ. But it also means you stop trusting yourself. Uh, here's the other key. You can't believe in Jesus and believe in yourself. You either believe in Jesus' ability to make you righteous or you believe in your ability to earn your righteousness. There's not two ways about it. There's only one. To become a Christian means, in effect, that you stop believing in your ability to run your life and you believe in Jesus' ability to run your life. You stop believing in your ability to save yourself the effect is then that you say, I believe in Jesus, I trust. And in believing, you receive. And then what happens? In receiving and believing, the text says you become. He says he gave the right to become the children of God. It means that God grants to those who receive and believe the rights of being adopted into his family. That now there's a, a new forgiveness that they have, a new cleansing, a new heart, a new entrance into God's presence. That when they die in this moment, on this lifetime, suddenly they're in the presence of the Lord because they have the rights of the children of God. And being part of what it means to be a Christian is that you have rights. Rights as a child of God. What kind of rights? Rights of access. Think of it this way. Think of the door on the front of your home or your apartment. Who has the right to not ring the doorbell and just walk in. I mean, not anybody. Not the UPS delivery guy as much as you want the present, right? Close friends and family. In fact, so much so that sometimes, 
If a close friend or a family member is outside ringing the doorbell, you'd think, what, just come in, your family, right? Just come in. Last week I was at my office and all of a sudden my office door just kind of burst open. I was like, who in the world? And oh, it's one of my kids. Like, that's, that's, that's what they do. They, they just come in, right? And why? Because they're kids. There's no door to dad's world. They just come on in, right? And that's awesome. They should do that, right? You shouldn't do that, but they should do that, right? And that's the point. Because of a relationship with God that has been given to us through the person and work of Jesus, we suddenly have new rights. So we can pray in Jesus' name. And then he continues to clarify, just to be sure we understand this, he says, who were born, now how were they born? They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God, but in order to understand they were born of God, he has to help us understand what they weren't born of. This is so important because this happens all the time. This relates to how human beings think about how they can be spiritually changed. I see this so often. For instance, whenever I have a conversation with somebody and they ask me what I do for a living, what happens next is a really interesting moment. When I tell them I'm a pastor of a church, interesting things are immediately said. For instance, if I tell them I'm a pastor of a church, sometimes people, thinking of their own spiritual journey, say, oh, my grandfather was a pastor. What's that person doing in that moment? They're using family lineage to try and prop themselves up. That's what John says, who were born not of blood. That's what he means, not of family lineage. You can't like go back in the family Rolodex and go, well, we had some really good people back in the third and fourth generations of our family. I had a grandfather a number of years ago who was a pastor. We try that, don't we? We go back to the family tree. He says, who were born not of the will of the flesh. Here's the other thing that people will do. They'll immediately say, I say, well, I'm a pastor. And they'll say, well, I do, I do a lot of good things. I do, I do. I work really hard. I don't do bad things. I do good things. What's, what's going on here? You're propping yourself with the will of the flesh. Or, nor of the will of man, which in some translations says nor of a husband's will, which means nor of your parental decisions that your parents make for you, because I've also had people say, well, my parents brought me to church all the time. See, what happens is that in our attempts to try and self-justify, we appeal to family lineage, we appeal to our own actions, or we appeal to the things that parents did for us, and what John says is none of it will work who says, who are born, but of God. No human agent, listen, no no ancestry, no parental action, and not your own strength can create this spiritual transformation. The message of the Bible and the beautiful story underneath all stories that we see in this season called Christmas is this, that in the midst of the tragedy of our lives, there's the possibility of being born again by God. It's the kind of hope that only comes from God's intervention, where God transforms you at a level so deep, so intimate, so personal, that everything about you changes in a way that you could never change on your own, and that's why it's called amazing grace. So friend, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your story is, all of our stories have the same plot line. We are imperfect people who intentionally and unintentionally bring death and destruction to things around us. The reality is that our lives have a possibility of being a catastrophe, and God's aim through Jesus is to change all of that 
by getting to the core story underneath all stories, which is how do people have a changed heart? And that brings us to the final word. The story of the gospel is tragedy, hope, and finally glory. You might think, oh, glory about me? Oh, no, 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 no. On the contrary, John says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The idea is that this this Son comes and he dwells among us. He becomes a man. He lives among human beings. It's the God-man. It's Jesus. And John talks about this, this glorious transformation that is possible You're born of God, and then it immediately turns to the glory of Jesus. You see, rather than continuing on about what Jesus can do or what Jesus does, John points us to the glory of Jesus. The other side of this is that the tragedy of rejecting Jesus, the tragedy of ignoring Jesus, means that you miss the most beautiful and attractive thing in the universe, which is the glory of Jesus. So believing in Jesus causes a person to stand in awe of him and not of ourselves. Because after all, if you didn't do it, if you couldn't do it, and the only way that you were rescued and saved was by trusting in someone else's work, then that means that your entire life revolves not around you, but around Jesus, and that's the fundamental heart change that Jesus brings. And that change, friend, changes how you see marriage and sexuality and money and career and children and parenting and death and the next life, it changes everything. And that's, that's the glory of Christmas, that this one who was called the way, the truth, and the life promises that if you believe in me, you become the children of God. This is the story underneath all other stories. It's the story of God's promise. It's how God saves people. It's how he saved me, and I hope it's how he has or will save you. Underneath the narrative of all narratives, whether it's film, or whether it's your life story, is God's aim to take people who are filled with brokenness and give them hope to the King of kings and Lord of lords who can change the one thing they could never change, their heart. The Bible says this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, that's the story underneath Christmas. It's the story underneath every story. It's the reason there is a story. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you make what I've just said really clear and really plain in the hearts of all of us today? but would you particularly make it clear to the person who's here on Christmas Eve trying to figure out what is life about? Where am I going? What what happens when I die? What's the purpose of life? Oh Lord, would you even now 
Begin to draw them to yourself. And Lord, even maybe, maybe this person today having seen and heard something through your word might be strangely drawn to say, Lord Jesus, I believe. Come, take my life, take over. I turn from my sins, I turn to Jesus. Lord, today make people Christians. Help them to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're thankful that this story is the story that you're sending out into the world. It's a story that is more evident and clear at this time of year. We're grateful to consider it. So help us now, Lord. Help us to think what this day is all about and how we should respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.